Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/spoken today. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And in this week's New Statesman podcast... We review the election result, yes. There's plenty still to talk about, particularly why Labour outperformed expectations and the Conservatives underperformed them. We discuss postal votes and whether or not they could have tipped the election to Labour if they'd been sent off a little bit later. And finally, we say hello to our new listeners um, because we've been hitting a pretty tight, endless podcast schedule, including our crazed 8am sleepless singathon. Uh, there are a lot more of you now listening to us. Um, do give us a review on iTunes if you so feel the need. So the dust has settled a little bit. Everybody has kind of calmed down, got their sleep back, had their porridge, I'm going to say. what's? Come on, tell me you haven't been trying to eat more healthily. I actually ate surprisingly healthily during the election. Um, I think partly because, oh God, this is a terrible sentence, but I'm locked into it now. Um, so usually during an election, my partner takes a lot of time off and, and goes to a marginal and, and um, I develop unhealthy living and sleeping habits because although I do the majority of the cooking, I realise I, I fundamentally only cook healthily for an audience. Um, and so I start, you know, eating like pasta and pesto direct from the pan um, <laughs> and it just enters into this, this really grim stage. But because of the snap election, she'd used all of her leave, which meant then um, the the deeply unhealthy um, election habits. Oh, right. You weren't just kind of buying mozzarella fingers from the supermarket yeah, and like sitting the, and eating them on your sofa. Yeah, like they, they did not happen. Yeah. Um, oh, well, that's good. I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, you know, obviously, we'll, we should have a separate podcast about our diet and exercise tips for political journalists. But let's talk first of all about uh, Labour and the kind of post mortem of why they did better than expected, which has kind of, luckily, the conversation has kind of moved on, right? It, it's much more nuanced than it was about a week ago. Well, I think. So we still don't have the... So YouGov has given us an idea. The local elections, um, which told us a great deal, it turned out about what a Labour voter was, but not... How many of them How many of them there were, by any instinct, by by any measure. Um, And then, of course, the British Electoral Survey data will will tell us a great deal uh, more. So I think in terms of the the what has happened, I was sitting down with lots of people from the leader's office for my column this week. And they are, yeah, they were saying they're very aware that, that... there is some kind of problem with with men, and some kind of problem. Tell in, me about it, Stephen. And oh, and some kind of problem in the Midlands. But until we tell have, me about it, Stephen. Yeah, until sorry. we have some kind of broader idea of 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 the full sort of picture of of who these men in the Midlands were, they're kind of going well. We, they're, they're very deliberately not trying to work out what it is they needed to do better among that group of people until there's 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 more data. And ditto, I think it's slightly too early to work out. I mean, I think broadly the kind of over-the-shoulder, uh, so fairly obvious, is there was an appetite for a positive and, and radical message of, of, of social change 
Yeah, um, I also think you probably it's quite easy to underestimate because if you're in labour, you want to attribute it to your own success to to underestimate how badly Theresa May cocked it up, um, particularly with the dementia tax and that manifesto and the way that the polls immediately tightened after that, that she just really, really repelled a lot of people. Um, Rob Ford of the University of Manchester was doing some interesting tweets yesterday saying, you know, we talked about this youth surge and actually there was this figure flying around of 72% youth turnout, which it turns out to be wildly overestimated. I think the YouGov um, post-election poll puts it more like 59%. So still up, like a, like, you know, a healthy bump and, and therefore also kind of energising because you think, well, there might be more to go because actually that's lower than the referendum, I'm pretty sure. But actually the group 35 to 44 is kind of more important in terms, I think 30% of those people switched from Tory to... Well, the, Labour? More, the, the more significant thing, and the slightly weird thing about this election, right, is that the the collapse of UKIP and the collapse of the Greens in some ways, and the failure of the Lib Dems to surge in popular vote, although obviously had a, a very good night in terms of seat, means that in some ways the the result, particularly on the Tory side, gives you a distorted impression of what happened. Because you look at that and you go, well, no one switched; there was just a surge. But actually, as you say, that decisively. Corbyn had a more appealing message slash the Conservatives uh, were more She still won handsomely among retired people Um, and actually her vote share went up, what, six points? Um, The Conservative vote share was up six points, but it's just that Labour vote share was up like ten points. Yeah, but again, it's it's the the churn effect, right? So there were an awful lot of Conservative 2015, Labour 2017. And there was voter suppression, uh, sort of accidental voter suppression, right? There are what I think uh, Rob was calling the the grumpy grannies, the people who you would have expected to turn out and you'd expected to turn out and vote either Conservative or UKIP and they just weren't there. They just went, well, I can't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but I also now can't vote for Theresa May. So, you know, a plague on both your houses. Yeah, Jeremy did a much better job, A, of getting people who hadn't voted for who wanted to vote for him to vote for him, but also... If you're a Labour voter with doubts about Labour, you voted Labour. If you're a Conservative voter with doubts about the Conservatives, you didn't vote. Um, so Differential turnout for once, helping Labour. Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, yeah, so that that kind of seems to be some of the, the data issue. The, the interesting thing is, so again, and again to my column this week, the, the running theme with people across the party is uh, what does this mean for uh, voter ID? Because well, it takes a to explain what voter ID is. So uh, sorry. So so actually, I, I really mean contact creator, which is the the data system that, that the Labour Party uses to. So in every ward level, voters. right, they have a list of every household and the people who are in the, that household. And over multiple elections, they build up a picture so they can say, you know, what when you vote, what how you voted last time, how you voted this time, right? Yeah. And therefore, that's quite useful in two senses that you can go to places where people who are thought to be swing voters live. And you can also go to places that are definitely in the back of your side just to do get out the vote stuff, offer people lifts to the polls, you know, give them a text on polling day. Yeah, and, sort of and you supplement it by um, by buying data from supermarkets and the like, because um, obviously the advantage that the parties have over, over everyone else is they know a lot about who their voters are. So if, for example, you, um, you can spot a very strong correlation with the voters you have talked to, so this is a really bad example because this is not the kind of thing you need to buy. But um, let's say you know that you do very well with voters in the private rented sector and you haven't been able to successfully knock on every door at everyone in your constituency in the private rented sector, but you know that 80% of the people you've spoken to in the private rented sector are voting for you, 10% are voting for the Lib Dems and 10% are, 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 are you know voting for parties of the variegated left, right? Then what you do is you just you then just leaflet all of those people with the same message because you know that broadly you are hitting more of your voters than you would you would miss, right? So on the whole, 
um, and in, in elections past, in the, in the European referendum, um, you can mostly get a very good idea just by speaking to party organisers, trade union officials, what is going on, and that allows them to put their resources in the right place. Chris Cook was running a great series this election of basically tracking the Conservative uh, visits. In Which order is to really see funny because they... they went to all the wrong places, yeah. right? I, but that's very good evidence to counter this emerging myth that actually there was stuff in the data that you could have read, you know, that the parties were kind of keeping it from us where how badly they thought they were doing or how well they thought they were doing. Actually, the the Conservatives' polling does, in, internal polling does seem to have been whack as well. Well, I think the really great thing about Chris's series is it has prevented Linton Crosby doing his usual thing after an election defeat of briefing, oh, I wasn't listened to. Because the interesting thing is in the Scottish campaign, they used populace who, for various reasons, were identified quite strongly with Remain and with the Cameroon, so were kind of frozen out uh, in London. And in terms of where the Conservatives thought the battleground in, in Scotland was, they, they picked it almost perfectly. Well, let's, the other side of that is there have been whispers on the kind of... I guess everybody in Labour is a Corbynite now, but you know what I mean, the kind of pre-believers, about the fact that essentially Labour... And actually, some of the places do phrase it as, you know, Labour HQ sabotaged the election, but certainly that they got wrong where the battlegrounds were. Well, I mean, they definitely did get wrong where the battle, you know, kind of the Labour's, yeah, I'm going to use the word professional class, which is slightly imperfect, and I'm very um, open to benefits. But basically, I mean, everyone who is paid to do politics, whether they are working for a trade union political team, working for the leader's office, working for an MP, working for a shadow camp, you know, then basically Labour's professional class had this idea of where the battleground was. Resources were allocated based on... And they thought it was a defensive election. Yeah, and also not just they thought it was a defensive election, they thought it, they, they were defending quite deep. Uh, they, they thought that basically if you had a majority of, of under 8,000, you were probably gone, and then they needed to hold every seat with a majority of 8,000. But that isn't necessarily analysis that Momentum and their big, you know, um, campaigning kind of army disagreed with, right? Because they also, their, their Find My Nearest Margin app, as I understand it, had a lot of defensive seats. It had seats. a lot of defensive seats. And actually, the, there, there were, so, uh, yeah, of the of the activists I talked to, and I will once again do my, um, my shout-out to any Labour Party uh, members, you know, Please let I'm I'm Call always me. happy to come and you know and, and you know speak at a fundraiser or whatever just so I can get an idea what, what how you feel about what's going on in your your patch and of the um of the yeah of the probably more than so after the defeat as part of my sort of post mortem into kind of so I obviously thought that there would be a surge but I didn't think it would be geographically useful and it turned out to be a very geographically useful surge so I kind of went through and went oh you know well what and of you know the kind of more than a hundred activists who told me how things were going privately although actually I think one of the things that it did expose is I tend to when an activist tweets at me going great response on the hashtag Labour doorstep I basically just bin it because because that's what they always say that's what they always say yeah. but actually the thing I hadn't um, absorbed about the Corbyn surge is if this makes any sense a lot of the new members don't have what I think of as Labour member Twitter etiquette so um I mean, now that they've joined and been very active, I think they've probably integrated into the sort of cultural uh, weft of the of the general party. But the thing I realised looking back is some of those people were also going, "Oh, terrible response here." Uh, so it was a it was a more useful. But they were actually telling the truth when they said when they great, said great response. <laughs> but 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 in general, you just feel like yeah, uh, if you if you because I have had people go yeah in, in elections past tweet great response 
you know, then texting or DMing being like toxic response, the SMP thing is cutting through. Yeah. Um, but of the hundred or so labor activists I talked to, and actually the closer they were to their own data sources, probably about a third, oh yeah, roughly a third of them went, oh, actually it's better than we think we should move. So there were individual constituencies where local parties basically went, we don't care what region is saying, we're going to stay here and fight um, fight this campaign here. And there were very near misses where if the battleground had been in a different place, uh, probably Labour would have done better. And for the Conservatives, if they had realised where the battleground actually was, so, in, you know, I'm trying to think of any particularly... Canterbury is a, a really yeah. good example, right? Lost by a tiny amount of vote. No, no visits, very little money, you know, no, no real diet, you know, no money other than the, the local budget and the regular mail shots. Probably, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting example of how, because obviously one of the other things that this, camp, this campaign showed is campaigns matter, a, well. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to come in and say is that campaigns, it's that, when we're doing our kind of post-mortem about things we got wrong, one of the things that everybody relied on was the idea that polls tended to, uh, if when they were wrong, they tended to be wrong in favour of Labour, which is, we now have quite a startling counterpoint to that. And the idea that actually you just, you know, uh, the Labour, the local elections preceding a general election gave you a really good idea of uh, of what the kind of final outcome would be. And I think one of the most interesting things that I've read, maybe because it just appealed to my... um, my prejudices is Hugo Rifkin's piece in the Times about the fact that you know Corbyn's critics were right and he changed and I think that's a that's a kind of thing that is 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 worth talking about. I mean, you've written about that before. His media appearances have improved enormously, and actually, I think what people I thought his first impressions had been made and they couldn't be undone. But actually, what we think we saw was that those big, high-profile broadcast appearances were actually the first time where people had really seen him, and that really changed people's minds. They were like, "Oh, this guy chatting about jam. I like this guy." So I I, I partially disagreed with the Corbyn's critics were right because he changed the thing because I think for, for me it's and the, the, the strong historical trend well I kind of think looking back that mostly the thing about campaigns um, not mattering is mostly they cancel each other out right so for example Labour very effectively at a local level and then the NUT who are not a affiliated trade union but most affiliated trade unions when you talk to them will say look actually we think the trade union who have the most biggest impact on this election with the NUT, with their posters that you may have seen against school cuts with the mm-hmm. white and the, I'm slightly colourblind, so they might not actually be yellow, but the white and yellow stop the school cuts. Now, what the Conservatives tried to do with their school meals thing is by switching from giving everyone a free lunch to giving everyone a free breakfast, you save money because breakfasts are cheaper than lunch and they were going to then use that money to undo the school cuts, right? Mm-hmm. So they cri- correctly identified they have had a problem. Just like in the last election, the Conservatives correctly identified they had a big problem because Labour's childcare offer was better. And then Cameron basically went, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll also have, you know, like Labour were offering 30 hours. We're like, we'll have 35 hours or, or some... Yeah, but the problem was that they then offered a cheap-ass breakfast. Yeah, so basically the problem, and this is again is the whole campaigns do matter thing, right? The, every other... Labour campaign or Tory campaign, not just and you and I have covered, but basically through history, would have successfully gone, we will we will not do these school cuts, and they would have cauterised the issue. This Tory campaign weirdly ended up going down this rabbit hole of, oh, we're going to give you some money, but we're also going to cancel some lunches, and, and any school which has spent money building capacity to cook its lunches on site. You've actually wasted that money and you're not going to get it back. And, and it, they just... But that's what I mean, is I think, that you know, the sort of battle for the narrative. And yeah, um, I think it's really important to talk about what the things that Labour did that are a template for future campaigns. But it's also quite important to talk about the things that the Conservatives did that you should never, ever do that are a terrible, terrible idea. 
Yeah, and I think the fascinating because the, the thing, you yeah, know, really early on, um, there was a you know poll by YouGov going, you know, who do you think is having the best campaign? And I tweet quote tweeted at the time going, this is a really good example of people just fitting their beliefs about the leaders to fit the facts because although this was before the dementia tax. She never, she was never having a good campaign, right? Labour were winning on the radio right from the beginning. You know, I said it at the time, and I absolutely stand by it. Labour were, Labour and Corbyn in particular were bossing the campaign, basically not just from when the campaign was started, but from the Easter recess when they had that great set of policy announcements, all the way through to election day. Labour were were well on top. And so the fact that 44 to 21% of people were going, actually, Theresa May is having the rest of this campaign, does show that you really you start with so much goodwill in terms of your first impression, you really have to nuke it. And I think the interesting thing is that <laughs> if she hadn't, the other counterfactual is the leader's office knew they were fighting a good campaign, right? They knew they had popular policies. And the bulk of Corbyn's sceptic MPs had decided they needed to, to be silent and be constructive. And they thought the campaign was going all right. But the media was very much not picking up on it. And voters were very much not picking up on the fact that Corbyn was having a better campaign. And it was then when they started... Because I feel like a lot of people said... I mean, Matt Chorley broke ranks in the Times and said she's dreadful and robotic. And actually, the narrative in the last two weeks of the campaign was Labour have done really well here, Conservatives have done really badly, but it won't matter. And that's it was the final bit that people got wrong. But I don't think anybody... Did anybody outside of the Daily Mail ever try and say she had a good campaign? I mean, their dementia tax front page was hilarious. Where it's like, finally, a politician who dares to tell the truth. Two days later, mm, probably good U-turn on this, thanks. But but the Matt only really went, she's rubbish. She didn't go, the campaign is bad. Mm, when I did my true. sort of, I think, like, look, Labour are having... Or, you know, actually, the, um, the unreported Labour are having a great campaign uh, piece, which... Both, super viral. Both did very well among people who, who agreed with it and also got an awful lot of mockery traffic. Um, yeah, but it got a lot of hope clicks. I mean, that's turned the, out they weren't hope clicks, though, didn't it? It turned out they were solid, you know, foresight um, clicks. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. Um, which brings me to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I think is a really... We did a, a, an issue at the start of the year that we called the New Divides in British Politics, in which we talked about some of the different ways you could slice and dice up the electorate, city versus sort of ex-urban, um, old versus young, white versus ethnic minority. But the one that seems the most important to this election, I think, is age. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, the only well, group, according to the, uh, the YouGov, that the Tories won is, the, is, is pensioners. Um, and actually, I think... I wonder if, I mean, maybe this is my prejudice because I would like this to be the case, that housing has now become a sufficiently um, big issue that a, a bulk of people are still trapped in the private rented sector, really unhappy about it. Far fewer people in social housing, far fewer people under 40 own their own home than they probably did 20 years ago, that this has now kind of made a big dent into the Conservatives. Um, so I think it's partly housing. I think it's bringing that, and, and again, I'm going to sort of caveat all of this with the the fact that everything we 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 can conclude, although YouGov had the best election and called the result with their model, you know, when, when the BES data comes out, it will show us a more complex picture. But, or it may just confirm it, but, you know, obviously these are all sort of interim uh, yeah. observations. But actually, Labour won that, that, that demographic even in places where the average... 30 to 40-something, can get on the property ladder. Uh, so, for example, they won back Gower, where, um, where, the, where, you know, where young people who, who work in Swansea can still buy a house. Well, the big problem was school But then school I think cut. that's schools, school then, isn't cuts, it? Yeah. It's, it's that, that's the thing that's really interesting between the ages of, kind of, I guess, 
27 and 40. That is a group of people whose lives are quite insecure. Their time is incredibly stretched. Actually, public services are incredibly important to them. In the same way that public services are incredibly important, if you're over 65, you're much more likely to be a user of the NHS, right? You're much more likely to be a school user, obviously, if you're at the age where most people in Britain have, have kids. Well, this is the leader's office. Um, so the leader's office know that they've got... Yeah, it's a great election result because it's tantalisingly close to power, right? But they also know that... Well, they don't know, but they assume because you'd... <laughs> it's laugh still funny. It would be. I mean, yeah. It would. It would be mad not to assume that the next Conservative campaign will be better than. Yeah, I mean, even if you just ran reran the whole entire campaign again, but you didn't announce a dementia tax, I think that probably would have changed things. But I also think the kind of interesting because yeah, the very long piece, and I sort of kept not finishing because I had a lot of thoughts about the Tory campaign's weird level of, of is then from a technical perspective, right? If you ignore the bits of the campaign that the candidate has to make decisions about, the Conservative campaign ran very well, which I know sounds really bizarre considering how every, how obviously quite a lot of it... The, the social media strategy, although um, obviously Labour benefited from having things that were organically shareable, right, that people wanted to share. I saw, even, and I don't know why, you know, living in Lewisham uh, and with my profile on Facebook, saw a lot of them. I saw a lot of Conservative adverts on Instagram. They... And this, I think, is very unpleasant. They targeted Diana, but mercilessly with like, do you want these people organising, bre- like, uh, negotiating Brexit? And you were like, I think something's gone wrong if the Home Secretary is getting involved in this. But that stuff will undoubtedly have been qu- quite effective. Oh, yeah. And they, in terms of what the other side were, were hearing and what other, every, other, everyone else's focus group telling them, yeah, they kind of, yeah, the sort of belt and braces, has their message been targeted? Were they ma- mostly managing to beam it out to the right people, uh, yes, they, they mostly succeeded in all of that. The problem is is their message was was bad and did not have anything inspiring in it, and every decision the candidate had to sign off became a bad decision. Do you or think she should have done the debates? Do you think that would have actually changed anything, or would that have just exposed her? No, so I... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think... You know, I, I always thought... Yeah, I said at the start, I said after battle for number 10, and I think even more now... Because I kind of think, and seeing as my analysis all the way through was Jeremy will boss the campaign, but people but don't matter. change their minds. Yeah. Therefore, everything I thought he would do well in the campaign, I think that mattered more, not less. So seeing as my view on it was she was right to swerve the debate because he would would beat her. Yeah. Feels to me likely. He's very good at that question time style format. She is not. However, the problem was... If you're going to swerve a debate, don't do it in a way which makes you look like a fraud, right? That whole I debate him every week or that ridiculous moment where she I'm went... I'm going to go and talk to people individually. You're like, really? How long yeah. have you got? Yeah, <laughs> it's just like you're not going to talk to people individually. Or when she said, oh, I, he should be preparing to negotiate Brexit. Oh, that like was I the am. worst one. It's just like one of those just like this. But I, I think this is one of the really fascinating mistakes that political campaigns make a lot. And obviously it's not always true. CF, Diane's truthful line about the IRA and Jeremy's fictitious line about the IRA. So Diane saying, I've changed my mind like I've changed my hairstyle versus yeah. Jeremy's, actually, it was I was I was a broker of peace and that's and why so I, I yeah. only met one side yeah, of the I, conflict. I, I wasn't, you know, uh, you know... And the thing is, like, most people... On hey. the eighty in the eighties on the left, and I don't just mean the Labour left. I mean you know, I'm including you know sort of like the, the quite right wing bits of the left did broadly have a more sympathetic, particularly in London, a more sympathetic attitude towards the IRA. Yeah, than Republicanism they, generally. Than, than they perhaps should have 
given... Um, but that, again, is an age thing. This is what I think is really fascinating. Is Do you remember the time when Jerry Adams' voice had to be dubbed over on British yeah. television? I used to think Sinn Féin was a person because of the weird dubbed voice. Um, so I just thought, well, they all sound the same, right? Yeah, yeah this, but also, do you not also Fane. remember Tony Blair standing next to various people who had previously been in the IRA? This is what I think is fascinating, is that uh, anyone, I would say, under the age of 40 really remembers the Northern Ireland peace process. They don't remember the troubles as strongly, right? But even and that t- fear message, therefore, sort of slightly fell flat with them. But even among people who, who did mention the IRA, it actually lagged voting intention, so... I think it's partly an age effect, but basically the Conservatives got 60% of the elderly vote and 55% went, oh, I don't like him because of the IRA. That, that to my mind, looks like someone's gone, I don't, I don't want to vote Labour, I don't like him, oh, something about the IRA. Not, I don't like him because of the... Yeah. You know, as, we, as we've seen from the fact that there is an endless stream of, when I send out my free morning email, which you can subscribe to if you don't already, um, an endless stream of people going, will Sinn Féin take their seats, which just categorically won't happen. Oh, right? Yeah, they just don't understand people, our, yeah, people, Northern Ireland. People in, on, yeah, on, 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 the, on the main island of the British Isles, as it were, don't, don't care all that much about Northern Ireland. How silly are we going to look when Sinn Féin do, in fact, take their seats? Sinn Féin are not going to do an oath in which they swear allegiance to the Queen, not least because they are quite literally attacking another party in the, in the Republic about doing this. I mean, the, the interesting uh, what-if, I mean, obviously at the moment it would still wouldn't matter because the numbers would still work for the Conservatives and DEP, but the interesting um, counterfactual is Owen Paterson, when he was Northern Ireland Secretary, briefly try, tried to change the oath so you didn't have to swear allegiance to the Queen. Well, that's not ridiculous because they already have a situation where you can affirm, right, rather than having to say anything about... Um, I was going to say, Jesus, we can... But that's, yeah. I've now I've now tipped I've now tipped out. It's too long without sleep. Um, yeah, I think the only thing is uh, for lessons for Labour next time. I, I said this in my blog that I wrote about le- lessons this week. Um, the the thing that I think is a is a banana skin on the road is Brexit as a proxy for immigration and freedom of movement. And I think that's uh, if I was in the leader's office, that's probably the maybe one of the top things that I would worry about your coalition of voters coming unstuck next time because they definitely benefited from angry Remainers. They benefit from a lot of the kind of people in cities, younger people who will have friends who are EU nationals who, you know, are worried about what's going on. And I think their manifesto did say, you know, rights for anyone who's currently here on day one. But I think that as a a freedom movement, as a general issue, I think they've, they've triangulated very successfully so far. I'd be really interested to know whether or not that can survive. question for uh, a section I like to call You Ask Us See, you mocked that and then you sang Les Mis and people really liked that on the, uh, on the yeah, podcast Yeah, but that was because time. it was an outpouring of joy um, <laughs> Every week doing this podcast is an outpouring of joy, surely The question this week is about postal votes, the timing of them. Did it affect the result? Because they came, they went out and they had to be sent back in I think at 
peak May, am I right? No, at peak crunch time in the polls for actually Labour, you know, things are tightening and Labour could have a chance. Yeah, I mean, so the... The argument against postal votes, although it gets made less because when postal votes were first introduced, the Conservative Party had an idea institutionally that they would largely be used by, you know, ethnics. Um, And then this would help the Labour Party. They are used by, you know, ethnics, but they're also used by the old. Um, So the the Conservative Party has relaxed and learned to love the postal vote. And so people go, oh, what, what if things change? I mean, actually... In terms of, so the question we've basically been asked is, does the fact that the postal votes went off when they were and the postal votes were overwhelmingly bad for Labour mean that uh, there's hope for Labour for a better result next time because those votes would have changed? Actually, in terms of, so the answer is, it, it would then, for actually for the Conservatives, it came right at the peak of the dementia tax U-turn. Um, so... It was actually probably the worst period of time for people to be sending their postal votes Because you were saying this to me, weren't you? It's not, just the, it's not just the dementia tax that hurt Theresa May, it's the U-turn on the dementia tax that hurt her. Yeah, the, the, the really interesting thing from the... Because the, obviously post-election polls are much more accurate because they know what they're waiting to. Um, and the focus groups, which again, you know, tell us general mood. And just also from, you know, knocking on doors and, and, and speaking to people about it and speaking to activists about what they've heard, which obviously, yes... Uh, was imperfect in some ways, but, you know, it's still better than me just plucking things from the ether. The the U-turn actually seems to have broken through more than the original policy because it, her promise, of course, was that she is, was strong, stable and wouldn't do anything crazy. And then she U-turned on the election, she U-turned on the pension, and people suddenly are like, oh, it kind of seems like you change your mind all the time. And the other thing which is interesting is the other thing which um, annoyed voters about her is this habit, which, again, weirdly, obviously, journalists... I think it's an interesting example of how if you cover politics, you kind of forget something is annoying, because for ages, journalists were going, oh, but she's giving another speech in which she acts as if she only became Prime Minister... You know, she, the, you know, the, she's the, never been in the Conservative Party before. She's never been in the before. Conservative Party before. Yeah. But we'd kind of been inured to it over the course of a year. But for a lot of people who kind of were just switching on to politics for the election campaign, the enough is enough speech, for example, people just like, but if enough is enough, isn't... Why are you even here, yeah, bro? Is, isn't, isn't this your job? Why, yeah, why, why are you telling us that you've failed? Um, but this is more vindication for your um, music, five minutes of music journalism uh, theory of politics, right? Which is what you need to recapture is the sense of what it's like to meet encounter people for the first time and kind of strip because that's I think that's why people misjudged Jeremy Corbyn right because they remembered all the things that you know and actually his positions two years ago you know when he was talking about NATO being a kind of thing that should be was that was completely obsolete and outdated that was a thing that kind of people went oh that's a bit much isn't it and but but that's all gone so for people who met, met him for the first time he just didn't have that anymore and I think things like you've got the, to recapture that freshness I think one of the things that the, the leader's office thinks and I think they're correct to do so is that Things like his one-show appearance, where he was calm and affable. I love that one-show appearance. Just, I mean, it was quite boring, but in a very, very reassuring way. Just Yeah, just meant that the idea that, that this, this genial man on the one-show was, was a scary threat just didn't work. Mm. He just wasn't plausible to people. His, uh, his image, I think, when it did a really interesting thing. I'm trying to work out exactly how to encapsulate it, but this sort of kind of underdog thing of... The difference between, I think, because he had nowhere to fall, right? Because he'd accepted that to some people he was ridiculous and was just kind of brazing through it. 
it actually meant that when he did things that were kind of a bit, you know, people could laugh at, actually people had, had he'd got into weirdly from the other side into that Boris Johnson passed the gaff into the he's doing it deliberately it's part of the persona thing right whereas now you see Theresa May who was this big you know ice queen monolith now she whenever something she does slightly wrong it kind of she looks ridiculous and it she's got further to fall if you see what I mean it's where he didn't have anywhere to fall so they didn't those things didn't kind of they just kind of bounced off him. Yeah, and I think they also did no actually I think that's wrong to be honest because so I did a, a Newsnight documentary which you can watch on the YouTube. Um and Seamus uh, had for a long time so had, Milne, been, Seamus Milne had been had been sort of trying to smarten him up and you know sharpen up his suit and actually the from doing not just archive footage from the last 2 years but from the 90s and 80s like he he does look like a, a very sort of together, yes, kind of scruffy in a homespun way, but he's gone from being scruffy in the kind of way of like the weird alcohol my mum makes at home kind of way and scruffy in a kind of craft beer kind of something you'd happily buy in a bar kind of way. Now, so yes, technically those two things are the same, but one of them has a... Yeah, so he. One of them's like, this is my personality, but I'm competent. Yeah. And one of them's like, I slept in a hedge, right? And that's what's. Oh, kind so of... she sent you some of it as well. Um... <laughs> and I think those are the sort of difficult. But the other thing he really did do completely successfully is communicate his personality and what the things were that people had liked about him in the first leadership election, right? And actually, the fact, I think you and I were talking about this ages ago, there's that he and this Kendall actually got on quite well together during that course of that election because they were just kind of people who just would sort of chat and had warmth together. Yeah, and I think the, the warmth obviously uh, helped. But yeah, in terms of the postal vote uh, question, the, the place where I think it, it almost certainly made a huge difference was Scotland because it, the postal vote sign-off and arrival time, and mostly people send it the day that it arrives or the day after, was the SNP had to cancel their manifesto launch because of the Manchester attacks which meant some people will have voted presumably without the SNP getting their sort of mm. big day day in the sun and, and, and a large chunk of their coverage. Obviously, it was a astonishingly bad election result for the SNP. Well, that's another question which I have for us, maybe for one for a separate you ask us, but about how much credit we should give to Carwin Jones in Wales and how much credit we should give to Kezia Dugdale in Scotland. Because actually those were two regions that... Labour had been at the start of the campaign really predicted to struggle in and it's two regions where they actually did really well and I think again this is about the kind of power of narrative obviously not to take anything away from Jeremy Corbyn but there were lots of people who you know John Wilcox explicitly ran against him and kind of picked up votes there were other people who definitely I know did work about don't worry even though you don't like Jeremy Corbyn you can still vote for me and they had to work kind of you know to it wasn't it wasn't a vote for Jeremy Corbyn it was a vote of in spite of him and I think that's we just have no idea how big that vote is and we kind of have no idea how big a vote there was for Carwin Jones's Labour. Well, I think the interesting question, particularly in so, because in you know, in in John Woodcock's seat, that it's not a young constituency. There wasn't a young surge, and there wasn't even that much of that thirty to forty-four session. But it, my instinct is Ed was already f- quite iffy on whether or not they were going to keep the subs. I kind of feel that if you care about that, someone being quite iffy probably means you. Your, your vote has gone, right? Mm. Someone being really not into it at all. Well, you're you're, you're already alarmed, so maybe they're just. But someone it. who likes jobs generally and likes trade unions generally and that kind of stuff. I think in a way, some of that sort of slightly offset it because um, he did have a slightly mad line about we were going to make the subs anyway. We were just going to kind of race them around the channel. Yeah, I, I think 
I also think people do quite. I'm, I'm, yeah. As people know, I'm, I'm a big skeptic of of the the utility and the size of personal votes. Simon Dunchuk, Simon Dunchuk brutally got, found out with his eight hundred eighty-one. But the thing is, actually, that's quite a. If you think about the size of a constituency, that's that's not that's not a bad percentage in terms of your total the number of people, people you can who, meet, particularly if you're Simon Dunchuk. Yeah, right. But it does kind of show the lack of utility of personal votes. I, I think in terms of the Wales issue. So obviously, Carwin is 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 popular. Um, and he is an electoral asset to them. So it probably did help that he was a, a big presence on the campaign trail. However, all of the evidence... La- so last time, right, 2015, very bad election in Wales, where, again, they knew that they had an ed problem, so they put Carl in front of front and centre. They lost seats. It was not a great night for them. Welsh election 2016, great night. I think people understand that they are they're not voting in an election in which Carwin Jones is going to become prime minister. Mm. I think it, it may have sort of allowed some people who didn't like um because obviously the what you kind of want in any election is to maximize the number of people who don't like your leader but like your party, the number of people who like your leader but don't like your party and get them to hang together, right? So it he probably gave some of those people an excuse. I think in Scotland we'll see, but my instinct is actually the National Labour Party standing in Scotland, I think, did a better job of being more attractive to voters than the Scottish Labour Party at Holyrood. Not least because you can argue about whether or not baby boxes are the best use of sort of public funds, but I think there has been slightly too much oppositionalism to broadly social democratic-ish things than the SNP has done in the Scottish Parliament, which was absent for obvious reasons from a yeah, a I guess again campaign. you've got the 2016 Holyrood uh, election results to uh, to kind of compare with the performance at the general election, and they significantly outperformed. And I think that. one of the things which sort of stuffed them, and I think this is, again is something that Jeremy did very well, and Ed did not do, is they very early had their no no packs and no deals. Emily Thornbury had her will bring a Queen speech, and if the SNP want to vote us down and explain to their electorate why they've let the Tories in come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. One, I, I think Emily thought we had a great election. I know she got her boob high fined by Jeremy Corbyn, but my, you know, my secret fave for Emily Thornbury was entirely vindicated by that absolute kippering that she gave to Michael Fallon oh, on the Marshall sofa. I think again, yeah, my top five election moments. I think that's number two. And what were you doing on the thirteenth of June, nineteen ninety-five? Whenever it was. Oh, it's great. It was anyway, amazing. I can't. I can't talk about my love of Emily Thornbury forever, Stephen. So we'll have to end there. been listening to the New Statesman podcast hosted by me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We are recorded by India Burke and mixed by James Shield. You can do one of many exciting things. You could subscribe to the magazine, thus allowing Stephen to buy more of the suits, which I see from his Instagram he wears even on holiday. Uh, and you could also come and see us live at the King's Place Politics Festival on the 25th of June, that's next Sunday at 4pm. Just search for New Statesman podcast live, King's Place. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.